arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. To those of you who take the movie gun battles in the old west literally, maybe you shouldn't be here. Final shootout in the good, the bad, and the ugly does have a relevance to the end of this science fiction book reunion. How sweet is justice, or even revenge, or perhaps survival, when the final fight to the death becomes intensely personal? I wish I had done this episode in video. Then you could see the expression in each man's eyes, as with great trepidation he fears the end of his own life, and he winces because he cannot contemplate a logical way out of a three-way shootout. Although Blondie removes the bullets from Tuco's gun, much to Tuco's chagrin, the bad is taken out, and he falls into his own grave. No such things here, but the personal principle is front and center. And I will even tell you, it's between Rafak and Commander John Ross. Episode 6, the final episode of Reunion, begins now. Chapter 32. Sokoski told Ross he was astonished they had achieved coil power in the hotel ship. He swiftly hobbled with Ross and Arkhoub against the landing strip's chilling winds. The sleek black hotel vessel, howl patched with blue sealant, vented steam through the coil exhaust portals. You risk great danger. The only thing left is risk, Cobb. Ross, still enraged by his father's murder two weeks ago, stopped abruptly. That Antarian will die. Silkowski leaned on his cane. He wiped his mouth and then looked Ross in the eye. Have you ever read Moby Dick? And have you ever read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich from 20th Century Earth? I can't let this thing spread out, and it is spreading. And why is Chris Keller's ship nearing Conchu? You're only one against many, Ross. And Rafak was one against many. Arkhoub tightened his brow. I do not know of the military or galactic command matters, but I understand that the ship over there will be plainly visible in space. You may be thinking more about your father's death than... He's right. Let galactic command figure this out, said Silkowski. Stay here. Now. Time grows short. I know, Rafik. He'll approach Axiom Baroma in peace. Then he'll use the Revac personnel to do his dirty work. How would Command know any differently? Sokoski closed his eyes briefly in the low sunlight, and his lips slowly puckered before he spoke. He opened his moist eyes and held Ross's shoulder. Even if you get this ship out of the atmosphere, Arkhoub is right. They will obliterate it. I know where this ship will be and when scanners will pick it up. But I'll be in my T-suit and away from the ship. If I recall, a T-suit has two hours of sustainable air. Ross grinned, and I damned as well better be near one of those ESS ships now, shouldn't I? I'm not going to talk you out of this, am I? He smiled slowly. My bet is you won't clear planetary gravity and be burned up in the atmosphere. Ross grinned and trekked across the tarmac again. Well, so much for the vote of confidence. What about you, Arkov? 
I sense you will leave the planet. And what do you base that on, the Elias belief? I feel, and so do others, the man you spoke to outside the fence was the Oris Bane, the true witness to Elias. Well, that experience was very strange. He did say that someday I would understand. I guess that keeps me in the category of living. Unless the man was a fraud, said Silkowski. Then that puts me back in the category of burning up, Doctor, said Ross, grinning as he motioned them inside. The front panels were realigned, but some of the modules were still missing. The small amount of aurier in the rear coils produced a blue shadow into the tunnel. I reworked the good coils and found four sets of coils discarded at the edge of the strip. Ship's Polonis said I'll get into space. With luck. Being alone was nothing new, especially in space, but Ross waited. Seated snugly in the pilot's chair harness, he was overwhelmed with loss. His family was revacked, and the old man never had a chance to fight Rafak directly, or surely he would have defeated the Antarian in one-to-one -one combat. The scanners easily swept the immediate area around Saul City and across the bay back to the mountains, yet he had no ability to send out transmissions on frequency channels. As the coils hummed, he visualized how Silkowski hugged him as he stepped into the vessel. The doctor had expressed his apologies for his work at the Pegasus Marichelli project. But Ross assured him he could never have known of Saul's plans nor of the arrival of the Antarian in the area. The craft shimmied. He looked toward the green sky through the span and then spoke loudly through the resonating coil noise. Polonis! Maneuver this vessel for immediate departure as per flight plan. Conchu, Sigma Antares. Course implemented. The vessel slowly rotated, and the silhouetted mountains across the sunlit bay swung into view. He knew Siokoski and the others were watching the vessel from the revac plan on the hill. The Polonis voice was clear. 96 seconds to break away, Burn. Understood. He had no real plan as he faced the ocean now to control the ESS ships because killing Rafik now surpassed even the threat to Galactic Command. The coils buzzed louder and the hotel vessel rolled along the concrete. In just a few seconds the acceleration lifted him upward. The outer land projected into the bay and the rolling hills tapered inland. His time with the old man down here had evolved into a mutual understanding. And near the end, friendship. Saul City was hardly visible at thousands of meters above the ocean. The intense burn without the exterior peri-fields increased the force on him. He was pushed back into the seat like the first humans, leaving Earth's gravity into space thousands of years ago. His face flattened and monitors blurred as the ship skirted the upper atmosphere. A definite aqua line perfectly traced a half-circle across the darkness of space. Force pushing against his chest and hips challenged his resolve. He cursed Rafik openly through the flailing, and he wondered if he could stop Rafik's inevitable onslaught. Even if he entered through one of the vessel's underbelly hatches, maneuvering through an ESS ship even with his years of experience, and actually getting to control the vessel now seemed insurmountable. He pushed against his harness as the effects of gravity eased and the craft glided into space. Polonis indicated three ESS ships were in triangular alignment in the Sigma Antares system. Ross estimated a 72-hour journey, provided the extended coil burn was steady and his jerry-rigged propulsion didn't rupture. Ship scans would spot the hotel vessel as soon as it entered the Sigma Antares system. He 
figured he'd have less than 15 minutes to slow the ship and abandon the vessel in his tea suit. A shrinking window of opportunity existed between his leaving the ship and before one of the demented Cybex ordered its destruction. Using maneuvering thrusters in the tea suit was also risky. One thruster failure could send him tumbling into the vacuum of space. Adding to his problems was a two-hour and 15-second air supply contained within the suit tubes. Ready for initial burn, stated the Polonus. Ross stared at the aqua planet as a weightless feeling encompassed his body. You have clearance, Polonus. Fifteen seconds. Coils are at 60% efficiency. Do you wish a maintenance check? Ross grinned and paused, and strangely thought of the old man back at the transmitter on Scavia Tangle. Let it burn! You risk- I know what I risk! Burn those damn coils! I don't care if Caleb's Aurea explodes from here to Baroma! Burn! The ship rocked and dipped slightly before the planet blurred and the light stretched into breakaway speeds, rainbow colors. He thought of his father as the craft was propelled forward in a singular burn toward Sigma Antares. It was odd he missed the old man now more than when he was alive. All the time away from the family had produced a normality. Now he genuinely longed to speak with the man he had come to respect and love. Chapter 33 Rafik scrambled to Ross's alcove chair and adjusted the black patch over his eye. Regrowth surgery would have easily have constructed his lost vision if he were on his own vessel. But all his vessels were gone and the sanctum was dissolved. His lost eye and the dissolution of his people were the direct responsibility of John Ross. You tell me you have directed a smaller vessel. You say it has a flight path directed from Scavia Tangle. I personally destroyed the remaining vessels. Such a flight would be impossible. What about the defensive ESS ships? Commander Keller, the same dazed look upon his expressionless face, looked up from the upper alcove. Protect the Paroma sector, the ships do. Approach the smaller vessel, does. I do not see it, said Rafik, blinking his good eye. Ross! Identify. Unable to do, said Lindsay. You will identify that craft or be killed! Registry does not exist, said Keller. Rafik kicked the console hard enough to hurt his foot. He has disabled it. Destroy that ship now. Implement, I will, said Keller. He mumbled to the command serban in the sky pilot base. Located Draxar, the ESS ships. Fire, you revac fool. Forget the ESS ships. Fire, you will. The Drax flew like ambient lightbenders in a straight line across space blackness. Rafik shuffled to the front viewer as the craft was hit and merely vanished without an explosion. Taste death, Ross. Taste death. I will avenge Marigault. Destroyed the craft is, said Lindsay. Yes, destroyed it is said Rafik, tilting his head back as he laughed. The Comploa has been satisfied. The Avorkton Code survives. We will rise again as a people. We will revac you humans. You win the war and now you lose your identities. Otters of yours, Serban, asked Keller. 
Meet the two ESS ships in peace. Have the second in command read the falsified report. Lure them in and annihilate. Then Baroma is virtually open to attack. The Sanctum will take back what is ours. Current duty assignment. I have, said Lindsay. Do not bore me or try to impress me with your duty agenda. I have planned this since Ross defeated me at Marigold, and now he is defeated. Lindsay faced the forward screen. Arrival time, four hours it will be. Marigold will be avenged. Now read your statement. This is Commander Hugh Lindsay. Respond to us, you will. Rathic slammed the frequency button. Read the statement! Don't add your perverted revac speech! We have secured Scavia Tangle from the revac human Philip O'Hara. The Antarian is dead. Rathic pushed the button again. Excellent! Let them respond! This is Chris Foley, Lindy. Status of ESS vessel, crew and vessel. Lindsay looked up at the Antarian. Rafik pushed the next message onto the screen. Read this. We require coil maintenance and have injuries. Send coil status and, and nature of injuries to ESS-9 Polonis. Yes, sir. Rafik nodded. ESS-9 and 7 will dark with ESS-14 in 3 hours and 45 minutes. Where's John? Lindsay looked up at Rafik. Rafik mouthed the word missing. Missing? Where? Missing with his father on Scavia Tangle. That's unsettling news. Have you implemented rescue procedures? Failed. Damn. John is resourceful. Prepare for docking. Yes, sir. Revac and implement, said Saul as he stepped through the conveyor doors. Revac and implement. Lindsay remained in front of the viewer. Command will fall at will, servant. Revac and implement. Ross stretched his legs in the starlit weightlessness. ESS-14 overshadowed him like a dim azure behemoth. His blue and a red compact schematic detailed the perifield alignment of the vessel's underbelly below the starboard sky pilot base. He had less than 15 minutes of breathable air until he would choke within his own carbon dioxide. Eleven hours ago, he casually left the hotel vessel's cargo container and watched as the vessel was destroyed by drac fire. But he had already set course for ESS-14 in the fleet formation with ESS-27 and ESS-19. The frequency scan of ESS-9 and 7 approaching from the Baroma outer sector was reverberated with Rafik's constant Antarian chatter. Ross would avoid the larger vessel sweeps. He neared a rounded and bolted hatchway marked 1697C. He punched in his personal code into the compact. The hatch lock slowly turned in the dull light. The blue peri fields compressed back and the hatch opened toward him. For 30 seconds his override would avoid any detection on the locus or the propulsion consoles. He squeezed through the narrow opening and the stars disappeared as he manually closed the hatch. He again inputted his code on the red digit panel and pressurized the constricted crawl space. When the gradient was equal, he slid open the inner panel and entered through the maintenance tube. He flipped his visor and quickly wiggled free of his T-suit. With his right hand, he squeezed the compact, unlocked it from the suit, and wrapped it on his upper arm. On his belly, he slid it under the long green and white cable and tube liners. Getting to an actual control panel required that he emerge near the sky pilot base 
but without a weapon he was vulnerable to whomever manned the area. He thought about the cold, scavia tangle air. The old man spoke in almost a compassionate tone, as if he knew he were going to die. Ross reached into a propulsion tube, wedged his body, and shimmied upward. The tube was rimmed with thick orange cables, controlling peri-field displacement. Only technicians at the overhauling stations crawled through these tubes. Most systems were checked remotely with sensing probes. As much as Rafik was accountable for the current debacle, Jack Bragg was as well responsible for dealing with the Antarians and procuring the Aria from the Masavik people. Ross clenched his fist. Possessing the Aria enabled the expanded revacking capacities and placed two critically berthed ESS vessels in danger, preventing the revacking of the entire sector, even though his own family and first officer were revacked, was paramount, yet subverted in his desire to kill Rafik. Three hours and fifteen minutes after he entered the hatchway, Ross had positioned himself directly under the lower sky pilot tarmac. Several additional frequencies opened up on his compact. He pushed his finger on the locust channel and he heard the Antarian's high-pitched voice. The two vessels. Dom, they will in forty-five minutes, said Gil Webb in a revac cadence. Ross tightened his brow as Webb continued. Are they not aware? We are in ESS ships. Marigold will be avenged. Ross pushed his lips together and pulled himself out of the hatchway. He heard movement on the megacrete above. Twenty meters ahead was the ladder way, extending up to the seldom-used connector hatch in the maintenance hub. He crawled ahead and stared up only five or six meters. The silver hatchway, number 45211, was the entry to his vessel. He tapped in his code. The security locks popped into an open position and he placed his fingertips on the gritty surface. Once he nudged the hatchway, the green-tinted light from the murky sky pilot base covered his blue jumpsuit and arms. He pushed his head through the opening. Lindy and Muldoon spoke with Saul 50 meters away at the upper consoles. Their stilted mannerisms did not seem real. He hoisted his body up and rolled under one of the perch ships. As he traversed the dusty megacrete, he realized he was like a bolt holding together the girder supports of the remaining Galactic Command infrastructure. He glided under the next sky pilot ship and spotted a corner Polonus Axis. Lindy remained in conversation with Saul and Muldoon. Ross's heart bashed against his ribs, and he deliberately tried to slow his rapid breathing. As he squatted under a wing, he debated whether to send a signal to Bruce Foley's ship. Only ten meters away, Rip, Tom Weeks, and Nancy Leary moved out of propulsion, their eyes glazed and gait stifled. He scooted up the spiral ladder, dipped under the panels, and slowly propped his head over the counter. With a quick finger dexterity, he accessed Polonus and boosted the impact signal. His whispered words were clear. Signature, Ross, John B. Reading. Ross lowered the volume. Polonus, override docking status. Genetic identification required. Ross placed his hand on the blue circular counter scanner. Blue light flashed upward. Cleared. Ross, John B. Security clearance, level 2. Implement stealth overhaul status. Ross was aggravated by Saul further down in the base. Stealth implemented. Good. Scan Locus. One image to the screen. To his right, Mike Pfeiffer and Mary Kerinsky marched into the base. Ross hardly believed what had happened to his friends. 
but the screen's locus image shook him. Rafik was profiled in Ross's command chair. A black patch covered his left eye. Another Antarian was by his side, and Gil Webb stood at the lower console. Damn him. Sure. Override all ESS panels. Lock out all locus control functions and communications. Override commencing 2%. Ross lowered his ear to his shoulders compact and listened to the locus conversation. Rafik showed no awareness of the diminishing functions. The Antarian made repeated slurs against Galactic Command and to Ross personally, but the references to revacking military forces on Axian Baroma sent fear rippling through his gut. System losses were at 11% and Rafik was still pontificating. We will take all forces at Axian Baroma. They will all be revacked and submit to the Antarian Sanctum. Ross backed down the stairway ladder, but he hit something solid as he stepped onto the Megacrete. A glazed-eyed Lindy pointed a drac beamer at him. Lindy. Revac and implement. Now, Ross swung his leg into Lindy's chest, prompting his second in command to fling the weapon as he keeled over. Saul spotted Ross and barreled forward with several Zulav. Ross scooped up the drac and fired blue drac beams before he rolled across the Megacrete. He dove under a propped-up sky pilot ship. Three Zulav were down, but Saul's drac beams scattered on the Megacrete. With his back to Ross, Saul headed directly toward Lindy. Kill you. I will, Ross. Ross ran along the ship and leaped through the air. He chopped at Saul's neck and split open the fleshy electrical pulseways. Blood sprayed onto the megacrete. With a smoldering morass of putrid, sizzling flesh, Saul fell dead to the floor. But two Zulofs locked their hands around Ross's wrist. Revac. Revac. You damn fools, why are you listening to the Antarian? Twenty meters away, the rounded orange spider leg revac domes glowed at the end of the conveyor tube. A Zuloff jumped from the overhead catwalk. Ross used his own body as a lever and sent him spinning into the sidewall. He kicked the man's weapon, smacked his ribs, and shoved him inside the revac dome. With a quick jab, he activated the containment fields. As the portable revac hummed, Ross sprinted to the spiral propulsion ladder and raced up to the consoles overlooking the clear conveyor tube. With a quick jab, he activated the containment fields. As the portable hummed, Ross sprinted to the spiral propulsion ladder and raced up the consoles overlooking the clear conveyor tube. Polonis, close all underpinning cabinets on my clearance as commander of this vessel. Underpinning cabinets closed. Ross gazed down the spinning revac light. I left that damn field in place. He slid down the ladder and sprinted into the dome. He banged the power button. The Zulof walked out of the dome and stood before him. His eyes were not glazed, but he stumbled as if he were losing power. You removed it. You removed it. You aren't revacked. I have survived. He took several steps and fell forward. Ross squatted and turned over his body. He placed his ear next to the man's chest cavity. Impossible. This man isn't dead. Nor is he revacked. Polonis, send this information to Baroma. Locus doors are opening, said Polonis. About time. Ross climbed on top of the conveyor tube and straddled the transparency. As he gazed down the clear linear expanse, Rafik's voice echoed throughout the length of the ship. I see you, Ross. You have challenged me. I welcome the challenge. 
Ross remained silent and rocked himself along the smooth tube as he gripped the drack firmly in his hand. Just the sound of Raffick's tinny voice brought back vivid flashes of his father's murder. So, you will die on your ship, Ross, and I will take Baroma. All of your colleagues, all of the remainder of your people, revac to do my bidding. The war is not over. The war is never over until the last Antarian is dead. Ross checked his compact, but an Antarian aimed a drac rifle over the tube. With a quick burst, Ross easily knocked him off the tube, but the drac beams alerted Rafik. The Antarian, in a gold commander's uniform with black trim, climbed over the top and now stood 150 meters away. In black pants and boots, he looked as if he had a human body. The patch over his eye indicated the severity of Ross's attack at Scavia Tangle. Ross, with his crew aiming dracks at him along the tube, felt as if he were inside a hive with the bees ready to sting. You're a coward, Rafik! One order and you are dead, Ross! And with that order, said Ross as he stood, you become the Antarian coward that you are! Let the others satisfy the Complore while you stand back! Away! cried the Antarian. Clear the area! Everyone to the Sky Pilot base! I have been challenged! The conveyor rocked with the combined pounding of boots against the side walkways. Ross caught sight of an exodus into the Sky Pilot base. He turned as Rafik moved toward him. You killed my father! Your father was a coward! All of Galactic Command is comprised of cowards! You had the superior military strength, but look how long it took for you to defeat us! Ross could not temper the anger he had contained since his father's murder at the revac plant. The Antarian fanned his weapon less than 50 meters away. Fighting a duel with this killer was ludicrous. While keeping his eyes trained on Rafik's black patch, Ross thought about the vessel's internal structure. Between the second and third conveyor bridges, the observation deck spans were fully protected by perifields. Removing the fields in a small area, although unconventional, would provide a weakness and a susceptibility to a drag beam. He whispered into his compact. Plonus, this is Ross. Confirm. Remove Perry Field from an area on a one meter diameter exactly centered on deck span 45B. That may take time. How long? Four minutes. Do it. Rafik's drag beam bounced off the conveyor. I say we fight in personal combat. No Drax. See who is really the victor at Marigold. You'll have no victory, Rafik. You can kill me, he said holding out the Drak. But you've lost all your servants, all your vessels, and your home planet will be occupied. No, I will return to my home planet with your command vessels. Time, Polonus. Three minutes, ten seconds. Damn, I have to stall him. Rafik stopped about 30 meters away. Alright, I say if we are to do personal combat, Rafik, then you must have the courage of your convictions. We meet back here in four hours. No combat gear, no Drax, everyone here to watch the fight. I am not the fool you make me out to be. Four hours, so you can plan my demise. We fight now. With galactic history, the only judge of our actions. Will you feign the praise of your comrades, Serban? 
What do you know of praise? I was a servant of my vessel, Ross, and you destroyed that vessel with my people. Your father's death is justified. Tell me what in your warped Antarian code justifies the death of my father. On his compact, the countdown to removal of Perryfields in the designated area rolled downward in the red digits. He needed to delay Rafik for another two minutes and 16 seconds. Honor and courage, something you humans know nothing of. If you had the honor, you would have fought my father, and you wouldn't have murdered him. Then I will fight you, unless you do not possess the courage without your locust weapons and explore a space shield. Ross wondered how he would keep Rafik at bay for another two minutes. I don't understand. Explain. There is nothing to explain, Commander. He slowly lifted his drac and Ross did the same. Firing your drac is not an exemplary use of the Complor. Ross sensed his own heartbeat accelerating. Is it? What do you know of the Complor? Enough to know that you must throw down that drac to show your Antarian courage. I will not succumb to your tricks, Ross. This is not Marigold. This is your final defeat. With one minute and 32 seconds on his compact timer, Ross kept the drac trained on Rafik and marched slowly along the conveyor top. You must realize that this is my ship. No more. I know things about this ship and have set things in motion so you'll die. Laia, hardly. I've already begun the process of your demise. Ross checked the compact as the time dipped below the one minute mark. As he turned to the observation deck span, a quick blue drac beam burst and grazed his arm. He dove onto the conveyor as the next beam scattered across the clear surface. With his thigh bleeding, he was worried about blood loss. As he flipped over and landed on walkway B, a long blood-smeared trail looped around the transparent conveyor. Once on his feet, he limped forward, holding his leg as he fought to reach the conveyor bridge before Rafik could center his drac. More blue beams pinged the outer hull as he climbed the stairs, but he hesitated as the bloody mess on his jumpsuit pant leg pulsed in sharp-edged pain. His breaths were short and dizziness threatened his balance. He hung on the stair rail as Rafik taunted him. You're a dead man, Ross. You're a dead man. Ross dragged himself to the landing near the conveyor doors. He collapsed on the spongy surface and watched the large red compact digits count down. The conveyor rumbled as Rafik ran along the top. Ross aimed his drac at the long starry spin. He fanned the beam toward the center, but the beam splinted off the transparency. Polonis! Perry's are still locked. 42 seconds. Get those Perry's undone! Rafik leaped onto walkway B. Ross spun to his right and fired, but the crafty Antarian scurried under the tube. Beams instantly cut through the floor like a buzzsaw blade. He leaped back, but slipped and fell down the stairs. The conveyor above blurred. With diminished strength, he couldn't move. Across the bridge, Rafik's boots wrapped against the stairs. Ross squinted and aimed his drac at the top landing. When the Antarian's white hair blended against the gray wall molding around the conveyor door, Ross squeezed the contact points. No beam indicated an insufficient charge. He shook the drac again and squeezed. Nothing happened. He rolled back slowly and pulled himself along the rail until he reached the walkway. The drac charger clearly showed no energy output, but he still held it as he passed below the tube's underbelly. Ross, I see human blood on the landing. 
Ross checked the stairs. I see a man bleeding to death. You are losing strength. You have to be. Perry fields, according to the timer, were removed from the span center. He targeted the span, but the drac still wouldn't fire. He dropped the weapon near a maintenance chamber. Adjustment tools were inside. He grabbed an extension clamp tool and moved forward, stopping Rafik now before the Antarian confiscated the fleet at Baroma was his sole responsibility. He pressed firmly on his singed leg wound, but his mind was fixed on his father's face back at the icy Scavia Tangle River as he approached the span. He cocked his arm and repeatedly banged the transparency. Above him, Rafik appeared on the landing. His smirk revealed his little green teeth. The Antarian slowly lifted his drac, but fired at the floor and the beam bounced. No weapons! The great commander Ross, hero of Marigout, has no weapons! Only a work tool! As he laughed, Ross again belted the transparency. You are a worm, lower than the slimy creatures inhabiting the mud on your once great planet Earth, Fenglaus! He fired, missing Ross by mere centimeters and producing a charred trail on the panel behind him. Ross smacked the transparency. Rafik's beam now bounced off the clear span, but caught the weakness in the perifield. A rounded, bright glow, exactly a meter in diameter, appeared above him to the right. Ross backtracked before Rafik could fire. The transparency weakness snapped and the rounded disc flew into space, producing a loud air whoosh through the tube. He pulled back on the maintenance chamber door as hefty air currents pushed back his hair. The force grew so strong that he gripped the door frame edges. He heard tumbling above him and pulled his body inside and then ordered Polonis to secure the door. The door snugly popped into place and through the room span he saw Rafik's body whip end over end across the landing. Beams from the Antarian's drac hit the floor and ricocheted off the walls as the Antarian was flipped end over end toward the span hole. His hands grasped the support pole. Save me, Ross! I will tell you how to reverse the revac! We changed the beam! They simply re-enter the chamber! The double exposure reverses the revac! Yes, yes, of course. Rafak reached out with his good hand. Ross stared at him. His upper lip curled. I gave you the information, Ross. Help me. This is for Admiral Bender. Ross lifted his boot high and leveraged his body into Rafak's shoulder, dislodging the Antarian from the pole. Rafak's compact body spun away and his screech was audible as he smacked the span. He had an incredulous look in his red eye as his body was sucked outward into the void, ripped and shredded in blood bursts. The remnants of the Antarian developed a slow angular momentum against the stars, slightly losing light until the outlines of Galactic Command's gold and black uniform merged with the night. July 2154 Galactic Time, Statora River Region, Planet Scavia Tangle. Commander John B. Ross, personal account. Using a Polonis voice modulation, I was able to simulate Rafik's voice and convince all the refact personnel on ESS-14, ESS-9, and ESS-27, as well as ESS-6, to return to Scavia Tangle. Note, Commander John Jack Bragg is officially listed as missing, although reports from Conchu 
hint of his departure from Raffick's fleet on a small tug vessel. Upon arrival on Scabia Tangle, the scene of my father's murder by the Antarian Raffick, Dr. Silkowski has informed me of what I suspected aboard ESS-14. A prolonged exposure in a revac chamber reverts the revacked individuals back to a pre-cybac condition. I observed aboard ship that a revacked individual did not survive more than a few seconds. Sokoski altered the intensity but maintained the exposure, avoiding bodily shock. I spent the first few minutes on Tangle, walking the Salt City landing strip with Commander Lindsay, now back to his usual jovial self. My family has survived. More difficult than briefing Commander Lindsay was informing my mother, sister, and brothers of my father's death at the revac plant. We all agreed that we'd leave tomorrow for Earthstar. It's what the old man would have wanted. Late in the day, I wandered beyond the landing strip alone and boarded the SAV for a flight to the Statura River region. I stared into the low-lying orange sun over the snowy mountains and thought back to my father when he was seated next to me on this riverbank. He spent a lifetime of bobbing and weaving through clandestine operations. I longed to speak with him, and I was saddened at all the time he was away during my youth. But I had gained a closeness in those waning days of the old man's life. I saw him change, and that change was reflected in his own view of the world and toward me. But I now respected him and what he stood for. I faced the sun with an increasing sense of purpose and respect for the old man whom I had once despised. Maybe it was the security of command surviving the last Antarian attack, but I found myself drawn toward the future in my career by forces I could not and dared not explain. Good night, Aristophanes. Command will not see the likes of you again. Hope you enjoyed Galactic Command Reunion. Next week we're going to run a kind of chick flick. Although I do think there's more to my book Downsize than the blossoming of a childhood romance. I'm Robert P. Fitton, leaving orbit from Scabia Tangle and heading for Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where Alan Sackett is about to discover the real meaning of life. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.